Well, no, I was hoping that you had something interesting to say that I, I, I disagreed <laughs> <Right>. with. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> As usual, I had nothing interesting I was, to say. I was hoping that we would have something where we could uh, have a little debate, but unfortunately, I think we're, we're you know more or less on the same page with this entire topic. So uh, I was trying to find some, some interesting content for our listeners. I failed. Yeah, it's been a multi-episode failure at this point. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Welcome, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, welcome to this very special edition of Cheap Talk. So we are recording this on Sunday afternoon. It is Sunday, October 4th. And as of the last time I checked Twitter, President Trump is at Walter Reed. Um, there was a briefing today by uh, his his doctor, and I think we learned not a whole lot, really, um, but uh, he has had some oxygen given to him. He's on a variety of, of uh, treatments for COVID, and there's been just a lot of speculation in the press, and I've gotten a couple of emails from students asking about what does this all mean, if anything, for continuity of government, and what does that mean for international security issues? So if the president is unable to discharge his responsibilities as commander in chief, um, does this kind of create more risk that the United States gets involved in some kind of conflict? What kind of signal does this send to potential adversaries of the United States? And yeah, so I thought maybe it'd be worth, I don't know, spending a few minutes chatting about this, this issue. When I think about this issue, Marcus, I got to say, like, let me just say off the top that I'm not particularly concerned about con continuity of government issues in general, or their, their link to US foreign policy in particular. When it comes down to it, if there's a crisis and the president isn't able to respond in some way to that crisis, there's a whole apparatus around the president that should enable uh, Vice President Pence or others to take action if necessary. So I'm not particularly concerned about this idea, although some people have brought up the, the possibility that there is delirium is a symptom of some of the medications that the president is on. Um, so there may be situations where the president isn't able to discharge his responsibilities, but yet hasn't been willing or hasn't made the decision to give up those responsibilities to someone else to deal with. And in that situation, you might have you might have some kind of problem. In general, I'm much more concerned about, I don't know, the the people who are actually the people actually making these decisions than the, than who um, then whether there'd be some kind of break in the chain of command. Right. That's less worrying to me, honestly, than than those who might be actually giving these orders. Uh, so I, I'm not I don't consider this to be like a really big issue, but I think it does raise some potential concerns about um, international security when it when it relates to, you know, the potential absence of a leader. Um, so what, what do you think about this, Marcus? Are you worried? Yeah, I, mean, I think I, I broadly agree with you, Jeff. This is not I'm, I am worried about some things like I, I do worry about, for example, the information that we're getting out of the White House, you know, just as a as an American citizen, like I worry that we're not being necessarily told, you know, everything that there is to know. And so I worry about things like that, the sort of the information that we're we're using to analyze and have this conversation. I get the impression that it's probably not completely transparent. And so for that reason, I think it is kind of difficult sometimes to, to know how worried we one should be. Uh, but I think having said all that, that, that I am, I am sort of with you that of the things to be concerned about, I don't think any type of presidential line of, of secession or 
chain of command type of issue is really is really like all that all that worrying. I think there's two maybe exceptions to that or two things that are that are I've been thinking about anyway. The first is that um, a lot of our talk about secession plans and and sort of what happens uh, if the president becomes incapacitated or you know the worst case he he dies. All of that uh, typically is is pretty clear, right? There, you know, we have our government is set up in such a way to sort of you know anticipate that type of problem. I think where it becomes a little bit murky though is is these situations where we don't really know whether the president is in, incapacitated and sort of who makes that call. So the other day when when um, on Friday when Trump was you know allegedly had a high fever, uh, allegedly needed oxygen. Um, there was some speculation on that day that if, if those things were actually the case, then maybe the president is not able to actually make the decisions in, in a way in which he would normally make those decisions, right? So he'd have all his faculties and, and be able to, you know, completely analyze a, a given situation. And so I do think that we should be thinking about conditions under which presidents should discharge their powers or should have uh, a vice president, let's say, be deputized or uh, given, given agency to make decisions in these cases that are sort of borderline. And so I, I do kind of uh, worry a little bit that maybe one of the things that could happen, not necessarily in this case, but, but in the future, uh, is a situation where the president believes that they have their full sort of set of faculties, and they believe that despite having a high fever, they can, they can execute the office. But everybody around them, or at least enough people around, the, around that president, disagrees uh, or thinks that, you know, there's signs that that's not true, then, then what happens, right? So it's sort of like we have the official sort of steps that need to, to go, you know, the various, you know... Uh, uh, forms that need to be filled out, if you will. Uh, but the question is, like, when do you fill out those forms? Like, when do we actually start, you know, instituting these these processes that would then uh, be, you know, laid out reasonably well uh, by the Constitution and, and other, you know, other things in, in government? I think that that's right. As a kind of matter of a well-functioning democracy, it would be good if it were routine and not a concern for the president to just say, okay. While I am dealing with this disease, Vice President Pence is, you know, in charge of the nuclear codes, right? I, like, I think that that would be good. And we have seen presidents do this in the past. They have some kind of, uh, they're, you know, having some oral surgery or something. They're going to be under anesthetic. Like, for this time period, we are officially designating the vice president as the person in charge. And, and that would be, like, a good thing. And if it wasn't wrapped up in all this politics around, you know, the health of the president and we're in the midst of an election and the president ha is concerned about appearing strong and, and, and all of that, then, then yeah, like, we, we should definitely be designating the next person because here the president's dealing with at least fatigue possibly a fever, possibly side effects from some of the treatments he's undergoing. And uh, all of those things should be grounds for the president to delegate responsibility to somebody else. But because of the kind of politics surrounding it, I think everyone is hesitating to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, I just think of my own sort of personal performance when I'm sick. And, and you know, it's like if I'm not feeling well, uh, I don't think I could make the, the sort of, you know, best decision possible. And so for that reason, I, I agree with you. It'd, it'd be nice if we lived in a, in a world where, you know, politicians would give up power every once in a while, even when they didn't necessarily have to. So not being forced to, uh, but just sort of thinking through, well, geez, you know, if, if, if for whatever reason, uh, something happens in the next six hours, and I'm not feeling all that great, it might be better to have somebody who feels, you know, 100% make those decisions, you know, in consultation, obviously, it's not like, you know, they would sort of put Trump in a, in a closet and close the door and, and say, you know, we're not going to talk to you. But, you know, have somebody who's, who's officially charged it that is really, you know, fully with it at the moment. I think that that that's right. You, you touched on the other sort of thing that I was going to mention, which is that my second concern is really sort of what happens on the other side of this. So, you know, it's, it's uh, looking, well, the, the, the doctor today 
said that he expects maybe discharge tomorrow. Who knows if that's going to happen? We have to wait and see, obviously, whether or not that that takes place. And I, I think a lot of people are skeptical given what we have learned about the medical situation. But, you know, the president leaves the hospital, goes back to the White House. And the things that we've heard about coronavirus is that the recovery period is not sort of, you know, one of these things, if you have symptoms, is not one of these things that, that sort of takes 48 hours and then you're, you're done. It can have some long lasting effects. And so, you know, some of the things could be, you know, lethargy and just, you know, overall fatigue and, and sort of cognitive, you know, abilities are a little bit reduced and, and a whole host of things that the medical literature at this point uh, has pointed to as being, you know, some of the things that you might experience. And so that's not really a secession question or a sort of chain of command question, but it's something I worry about in the sense that, you know, if the president is continuing to feel, let's say, cognitive effects, whatever they might be, I think that's concerning. You know, I think that that's, that's similar uh, to some of the things that people have written about in the past where, where presidents have been on, you know, painkillers for a variety of, of things, for example, or after surgeries, you know, are on uh, various medication for, for dealing with that that make them, you know, maybe a little bit fuzzy or sort of loopy or whatever in their thinking. Uh, and, and, you know, scholars have looked at that period and said, you know, these, these, are, these aren't great situations where the president feels like they don't have all their, their cognitive faculties. So I'm actually, at the moment, thinking more about sort of what happens in the next, you know, two to three weeks, uh, as the president presumably will want to, re, you know, sort of get back on the campaign trail, may even try to hold a rally, you know, basically expending a lot of effort to, to win the election on November 3rd at a time when, you know, I think most doctors would probably suggest that that's the, the exact opposite of what one should be doing and, and try to fully recover. So I, th- I look about, think about decision making sort of during that period uh, as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think um, a couple of points I would add, if you're familiar with our back catalog and you're listening to this, you might be thinking, but why are we even talking about the president's health given Kaplow's contention over the course of several podcast episodes that individuals don't really matter um, to to international relations. And so I I just want to kind of address that point uh, because I may or may not have gotten an email um, asking me this, because it really isn't an issue of do individuals matter for foreign policy decision making. What What it really is an issue of is do other countries think that there is maybe some breakdown in U.S. the capacity of the United States to respond to some international crisis, right? And this is a little bit of a different question than do individual decision makers make a huge difference in in international politics? It's more about, you know, the perception of the chain of command um, from the perspective of some potential adversary of the United States. And that's a different question. It is plausible, I think, that even if you don't think, well, um, the particular backgrounds of a leader make a whole lot of difference, that if that leader is, if the, whoever is supposed to be the leader is incapacitated, that other countries might see that as an opportunity or a chance to press some advantage. So we do need to consider this issue, even if you're like fully in the leaders don't matter camp. Uh, that doesn't mean that illness or death of a, of a leader doesn't make a difference in terms of the overall ability of a country to execute its foreign policy. So I uh, just wanted to put that out there first. I think there is a risk. Maybe that's hard to imagine in this case, honestly, but but I think in general, there is a risk when a leader is ill or uh, dies that nor- otherwise normal events might be misinterpreted or that the kind of overall uh, level of tension between two countries could lead to a potential crisis where otherwise you wouldn't have one. Because everyone has this idea in their mind, well, now others may see us as particularly vulnerable. And so I'm just thinking of a couple of examples. So, so just after he announced he was positive 
there some some folks who like pay attention to what military planes are where pointed out that there were a couple of uh, E6B Mercury flights. These are uh, aircraft that are part of the U.S. nuclear command and control system. They help communicate. They're kind of a backup means of communication with uh, U.S. nuclear submarines. There were two flights spotted. Um, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, by some people who pay attention to this. And this was picked up by the uninformed press um, almost immediately. And so you had a number of articles about like the U.S. signaling potential adversaries that we're still serious about our nuclear weapons, even if the president isn't available or some, something like this. And people saw people saw these flights as a kind of way of showing our strength, even as the president um, was announcing his COVID diagnosis. And it's just not true at all, right? These are just routine flights that happen constantly because maintaining our command and control of our nuclear weapons is like a routine thing that we're doing all the time. But because of the events that were going on, this routine thing was misinterpreted or it was given significantly more weight than it should have been, right? And so there is some risk that some other country can see what would otherwise be kind of a normal uh, action, normal behavior on the part of a country who's have has some leader succession issue and will interpret it differently because they have in their mind th this this crisis that's going on or this um, this issue with with the leadership that's going on. And, you know, at the same time, I, you know, there are some signs that North Korea is planning some missile stuff. Um, so we've the North the Korean press is printing, you know, some some photos of uh, large missiles being kind of placed into position. There's a, a commemoration of North Korean um, like labor holiday, 75 years of, of the Labor Party in North Korea, whatever it is. I don't know the details of this, but there's there's like some event coming up. And so it's very possible we'll see kind of the display of missiles. Uh, we may even see a missile test. That's always a possibility uh, around this time. North Korea has been pretty quiet for a while, so they're due for something like this. And so, you know, one question is, would North Korea change its behavior looking at what's going on in, in the United States? And whether if, if they did go ahead, let's say, with a missile test that maybe they were planning before, who knows, um, would the U.S. misinterpret that as an attempt by the by the North Koreans to kind of take advantage of an issue that's happening in the United States and like, oh, maybe the president is weak and not able to respond. And so we can we can send a signal here. And I, I think that having that additional question in your mind of, is this due to what's going on in the U.S. leadership situation? Is this a response to it? Um, how will the U.S. respond given that situation? All of these things are fraught and it's potentially, it's at least possible that you could get some kind of a crisis rolling out of here simply because of questions about leadership secession. Now, my prior view on this, my naive view is that countries are likely to behave more cautiously rather than less cautiously because they have this in the back of their head, right? And you can think of um, the Soviet Union after the Kennedy assassination, right? The Soviet Union was very concerned that uh, some U.S. general was going to like make some stupid decision because they feared that this was part of some attack uh, that, that Kennedy's assassination was arranged by the Soviet Union. And so the Soviet Union like uh, took steps to make sure that they did not do anything that could potentially be seen as aggressive in the immediate aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. And so you could imagine North Korea actually looking at what's going on in the U.S. and saying, oh, we should probably just sit back for a minute, right? That, that this is, we don't want anyone deciding they want to send a message right now about U.S. strength. Uh, so my, my prior view would be that probably this points more in the direction of caution rather than the direction of uh, additional aggressiveness. But it's also not clear who would be able to take advantage of, of this on the part of the United States, you know? Um, so I, it's not like we're in a position where we've been kind of standing off against some other country on the brink of war. 
And so this is the ch- their chance to press their advantage. It doesn't seem like that right now. So those are just a, a couple of thoughts that, that, uh, that I've, been, I've been having about, about this situation. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I, I have to say I, I basically 100% agree with everything you just said. I My prior on this was also that it's it's unlikely that we're going to see like a, for a North Korea, for example, try to take advantage of this for, for the reasons you just said. I mean, I would I would think actually that if I was North Korea looking at this, you would you would expect that a Donald Trump who's um, to, let's use a sort of psychological approach. Right. So this idea of, of prospect theory in, in psychology, which basically, you know, says that if you're in a what they call the domain of losses, meaning you sort of have lost a lot recently relative to where you've been, um, you're willing to take more risk. And so you're willing to do that because you want to sort of get back what you've, you've previously lost. So if, like, if you've been to Vegas before, you might see this behavior quite a bit at a roulette table or a craps table or whatever. These gamblers try to sort of win back what they've, they've lost. And the way that they do that is not by making smaller bets usually, but by making larger ones. My whole career is trying to recover from being in the lost domain, take riskier and riskier bets. In any event, from a prospect theory perspective, you might think that Trump has, I think, objectively suffered, you know, some losses recently, whether it's uh, sort of looking at the polls, let's say, or just the, you know, I think many people's interpretation of what's happened over the last few days is, is that going to the hospital for COVID has been somewhat of a humiliating experience uh, for the president, given his prior statements and actions. And so you might think that, that Trump is in a domain of loss. And so therefore, if North Korea were to take some action, he might be in a position, Trump being more in a position where he wants to show, you know, no, I'm, I'm going to sort of take advantage of this, actually, and, and get something back and, and take some take a powerful step on the international stage and get get some of the attention off of, of what's going on with me and, and place it, you know, over in the, the Sea of Japan, let's say, right? So I think North Korea appreciates that and understands that this this might be the case. And so if you're thinking about this as sort of like strategic terms, you know, sometimes it's easy, I think, for, for us to look at it from the United States' perspective. We say, okay, here's what here's what we're gonna do, here's what we should do, right? And we forget that North Korea is having their own thoughts and and you know, despite what you think about about the North Korean regime, I don't think they're stupid. You know, I think they know uh, uh, a lot about how to deal with the United States. I think they also know a lot about how to deal with Trump. And so I, I think they would believe that that Trump is likely to take some type of, of military action and response. And so like you, I, I think these all these reasons kind of point to uh, why it's unlikely for North Korea uh, in particular to, to do anything. The only exception to this whole discussion, I think, for me would be states that benefit from the sort of chaos uh, domestically in the United States, right? So if we think about sort of Russian disinformation, um, there might be an opportunity for a, a state like Russia if they wanted to further, you know, some type of, of chaos electorally, uh, not necessarily in, in terms of, of hacking the election, but in terms of, you know, social media or, you know, some of the things that we saw in 2016. This is, I think, an opportunity to do that because you have, you know, the United States basically uh, glued to their their Twitter feeds, glued to Facebook, glued to CNN, whatever. Um, and people are nervous and people are, are don't know what what's going on. And and. Uh, at the moment, I think a lot of people feel like the information that they're getting is not complete, and so they're they're sort of suspect, and they're, that that makes them somewhat vulnerable to information that might not be true, but, but has a sort of nefar- nefarious origin. And so I, I I don't think about the the risks here so much in terms of of military action, in terms of you know nuclear war or, or any type of of physical um, kind of altercation, but more you know some uh, on the information side and some of those sort of you know, softer types of of uh, warfare, I guess we could call it, we've seen over the last, you know, couple of election cycles. Right, right. So I agree with you that I, th- I think anything that creates this kind of chaos uh, is good news for cyber operations that are aimed at disinformation. It just provides more things to touch on in your disinformation campaign. I anticipate we'll see 
a continued effort to use of current events as a wedge to try to generate disinformation and post it on Facebook and Twitter and and whatnot. But that was happening at a pretty high level anyway. And so it's not clear that there's a lot like, you know, it's going to keep on happening. Is it going to be a huge uptick? Probably not. Probably about the same amount of, of this stuff. It's just this this provides one more thing to last, latch onto, one more issue area to latch onto. But in terms of actual international conflict, uh, as I as I tried to say before, I, I don't really see um, anything anything that's likely to come about because of the the situation with the president. So I think there is a, a strong possibility that North Korea decides that like now is a good time to announce a new weapon system or maybe even do a test, uh, maybe even do a missile test. And um, I'm not great at predicting those, so I'm not gonna. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it's going to happen, but it wouldn't shock me if it did. And it also wouldn't shock me if it, had, if it had nothing to do with what's going on with the president's illness. And so we shouldn't overinterpret it in that way. Um, in fact, if, if it happens, I think it's very likely that it would have already happened, that it was already planned to happen. Um, and these are just kind of following through with what they already intended to do. So I, I, I doubt that the president's illness will prompt any kind of international crisis that wasn't already underway. And it's not as if we don't have enough international crises to worry about at the moment. It's just that the U.S. isn't a key player in most of them. I, I don't I don't really see like the next big conflict on the rise. And do I think that this is the moment that China decides we're just taking the South China Sea by force? No, I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, but I don't think that was going to happen anyway. I don't think that that's the uh, that the president's illness is going to really drive anything like that. All right, Jeff. Well, uh, this has been a pleasure. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I like walking in non-populated areas. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't like I don't like the people. Uh, we went to Merchant Square. It's very crowded. Oh yeah, uh, we know that place is the death trap. I'm not going there. Uh, yeah, no, not even even outdoors. It's not good. So we we walked around, did a little campus loop. Um, I uh, walked to the what is it? Bicentennial Park, Centennial Park, and we saw somebody setting up a hammock between two trees, which was like fascinating to my children. But it took him like 15, 20 minutes to do it. And I'm not sure the payoff was. And then like he gets in the thing and he, you know, is trying to like study or something. It was a, yeah. it was a bit of a mess. So. In my experience, I don't have a whole lot of hammock experience, but trying to set those up properly is very difficult. Like you have to, first of all, you have to have a good hammock. And then also you have to kind of know what you're doing. Otherwise, it's a, it's a total pain and it never works. And you're, you're always like sagging and, you know. But not. I'm just picturing this guy like resolving to sit in a hammock more going on amazon like reading hammock kit reviews right the, the wire cutters recommendation of which hammock to get this week Do they cover and, those? and the, i mean i don't know and then like then like it arrives and he's really excited about it he like breaks it out of the package and like maybe even practices setting it up like in his yard because he only has one tree but he's trying it anyway <laughs> you know and right. then he spends the next couple weeks like scouting possible locations in the greater Williamsburg area and then he finds like two trees that are the within the prescribed trees. distance and and there must not it must be a fairly narrow range of trees that you tree distances and it has to be like a certain thickness right yeah well this is where the quality of the hammock comes in I think I think you're on your cheaper hammocks that definitely is true if you the higher end ones have a lot more flexibility I believe where you can really I mean some of them I've gone down this rabbit hole once on YouTube. Uh, some of them are, they could basically connect to, to anything. You know, yeah. like you could have like a thin, like a, 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 a rose bush and they could like, you know, hang on to that thing. 
But yeah, if you have a cheap one, it's going to be a nightmare. Well, you know, he gets to the park. He finds his trees. It's a beautiful he, day. He sits, he lays, he's got this giant backpack full of hammock equipment. <laughs> lay, lays the backpack down, takes all the items out, arranges them. Right. You know, as if he's about to like begin surgery. You and know? you know, and, and the problem is those those items are never going back into that bag like the way they originally, you know, you know, Kim's stripped in this bag. Oh, yeah. He's never going to be able to get that back into the bag. Yeah. You know, it's like a one, it's just one opportunity to, to have a good time. And he like meticulously like loops it around and it all goes through with the double tie. Right. And then he's got the hook ready and it takes him a little while to get the first hook set up. And it was right. just it was just fascinating to watch. And then just for the moment, just for the that moment when the hammock was completed the look of satisfaction <laughs> on his face because you know like as soon as he gets in the hammock he's going to realize that this was totally not worth it this is the thing is like not a lot of lumbar support in that hammock you know i think right that's that's the puzzling thing to me like does anybody actually like like laying in a hammock i i don't i, I find them to be terribly uncomfortable and it's one of those things that i think is better in in theory than in yeah, when yeah, you, yeah. you know it seems like the kind of thing you would enjoy but right. then when you actually get in the hammock, eh. it's like a saggy mattress. I mean, it is. It's I, like, I, yeah, yeah. I'd rather just lay on the ground, you know, well, it's like, like a saggy mattress with the risk of like depositing you onto the ground from like four feet up, right. you know, maybe that's what people enjoy is the, the, the subtle kind of like low risk. Yeah, maybe that they might they might fall. 